Hi, and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature podcast with me, Chris Jordan. Today I'm talking with Guillermo Duff. Guillermo is Curriculum Manager for Language A in the International Baccalaureate Diploma Programme and is currently based in The Hague. Today's episode is being released slightly earlier in the week as I believe that what Guillermo has to offer may help with any Language A teachers currently reviewing the course for next term. We discussed the one literary text or writer that continues to provide Guillermo with a passion for education, the Language A curriculum's recent shift from designated parts to greater school autonomy, and its success thus far, the possibility of a bodies of work prescribed reading list for language in the same way we have one for literature, the types of language texts that are better suited to bodies of work, in Guillermo's opinion, the reason why the individual oral asks for students to focus on global issues, whilst the HL essay is concerned with the course's key concepts, the inclusion of rhetoric in the final delivery of the individual oral and how far students are expected to go with this, and finally, the learner portfolio and how Guillermo sees its role in the course. Many thanks to Guillermo for speaking so passionately and in depth about topics hotly debated on forums and in English department staff rooms around the world. I wish him well with his continued leading of the course. Okay, Guillermo, uh, as someone who has quite an extensive background in uh, language teaching, um, what is one literary text or writer that continues to provide you with a passion for teaching or education in general? Yeah, well, that, that, that's an interesting and a difficult question. I, I, I would probably find it easier to answer that question if it were about non-literary uh, oh. academic writers. I, I find, you know, that um, non-literary academic writers had a much more direct impact on my teaching and on my ideas about education than literary texts. You know, my, my graduate degree is on teaching of English as a foreign language. Um, and there were some academic authors who really inspired big ideas on the nature of foreign language teaching. And there were, there were, there were, there were some authors, which is very difficult for me to um, forget or for me um, not to um, keep referring to as I, as I taught. Well, I'm not teaching any longer, but now as a curriculum designer, I'm thinking about authors like Henry Widowson and, and his emphasis on teaching language as communication and how teaching needs to be contextualized and meaningful. Um, I'm thinking about John McRae and his literature with a small L, his proposal to approach literature in a less solemn way. Mm-hmm. Um, more recently, Carol Tomlinson, um, you know, and, and her passion for catering for individual students' needs and, and interests, um, or, or Grant Wiggins and Jake McTighe and their ideas about performance tasks um, to check on meaningful understanding. But well, all these are non-literary writers. Uh, we've had quite an intense debate about the difference between the literary and the non-literary in language A forums and communities in the last two years for me to pretend that I'm answering your question by referring to these names. Um, so uh, as far as literary writers are concerned and which of them um, I, I, which of them that I have read continue to uh, instill in me a passion for teaching, I would say I would have to go with the transcendentalists. Um, I'm thinking of Emerson, of Whitman, of Thoreau. Um, And and the reason I I find them so inspiring as an educator is that um, I find, and my experience as a teacher and as a coordinator, is that um, self-reliance is such a fundamental characteristic in a teacher. Um, A risk taker, the IB would say. Somebody who's daring, who is confident enough uh, to try new things, um, to inspire others to think differently. You know, it's, it's funny because um, 1989 was the year in which I started my training course. I, I you know, finished school in 1988. I started my teacher training course in 1989. And that was also the year in which the Dead Poet Society was released. Um, and, and it is hard to minif- minimize the effect that the film and, and all the writers that are referred to in the film um, had in me uh, as an 18 year old starting, uh, you know, their study, my studies in, in the teacher training course. Um, those ideas of, of, of the teacher as, a, as an inspirer, 
uh, as a complex figure that, that, that invites students to question their contexts and their beliefs and assumptions. Um, a figure that even embraces uh, his or her own complexity and contradictions in, in a kind of very Whitmanian way. Um, um, you know, the, the kind of figure whose, whose, whose passion and, and enthusiasm and courage make it impossible for students to remain indifferent. Um, somebody, somebody who, who thinks um, of, 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 of a teacher as an artist uh, and of teaching as an art. Uh, so, yeah, definitely from the point of view of um, literary authors, I, I would have to um, refer to them, to Emerson, to Whitman, to Thoreau and to John Keating. Why not? <laughs> um, going back to something you mentioned a moment ago uh, with regard to like the, the the debate, as it were, that happens on the, the IB Language A forums, the, the Language A curriculum has sort of recently seen a very ambitious shift from the designated parts, part one, two, three, four, as we all knew them before, to greater school autonomy for how the course is set up and taught. Mm-hmm. What what prompted the shift? What sort of conversations were there about why this needed to happen, and what has been the feedback thus far? Yeah, that 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 ties in very nicely with 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 the previous question. Um, when we decided to um, sever this connection between this one on one one to one correspondence between parts and um, and assessment components, we what we were aiming at is um, for teachers to be able to feel to feel freer uh, in the context of language A courses. Um, everything in the last iteration of the language A courses is is an invitation for teachers to take risks, to think creatively, to question the the structures and formats the legacy courses supported, and to find what organizing principle and which texts work best for them, for their students, for the context. Um, so um, for one thing, we, we were hoping that um, there would be less teaching to the test, um, because if there's no guarantee of uh, what component each student will be using the works or bodies of work for, then it makes much less sense to focus the learning and the teaching exclusively on assessment. Yeah. Uh, so that was one of thing. One thing, um, learning and teaching, uh, we hoped would become much more focused on acquisition of skills um, and on enabling students to transfer those skills to and apply those skills to other texts in other contexts for other purposes. And and we of course wanted some of this freedom, and we hope that some of this freedom would be shared with students as well. Uh, so that there is in many places in language aid documents and an invitation to give students a greater say, not, not, not just in what to use each work or body of work for, but also in the choice of works and bodies of work themselves. You know, we, we um, mentioned a number of times in the TSM uh, literary circles methodology, uh, where stu- students get much more autonomy over what to read and and how to uh, how to go about uh, interacting or engaging with that text. The um, the other thing uh, that the move away from the commentary formats in paper one and in the individual oral uh, oral also um, responds to the same effort. We wanted student engagement with texts to be more meaningful, more personal less protocol or recipe oriented. Mm -hmm. So within within what we wanted, within what is reasonable to expect in an exam context, in assessment setting, we wanted less exam wiseness and more significant student engagement with what texts um, mean to them uh, and what relevance they have in, in their contexts. So I think it was a a big paradigm shift. Um, the, the new courses are very different from the old courses in, in, in that sense. Um, when, when the courses were launched, um, there was some enthusiasm, but also some caution and a bit of apprehension. Um, I, I think this, this always happens anyway in a transition between course models, especially when they're so different. But but now that the first session has taken place, um, I, I've been participating in standardization meetings. Um, and, and what I hear from examiners uh, about the performance of students, what I hear from teachers in the IB communities and through workshop leaders is that um, 
there is more enthusiastic feedback in, in terms of the courses having become more student-centered, more meaningful, more engaging, more relevant. Uh, so I, I've, I've noticed um, that the initial hesitation um, has given way to more enthusiasm lately. Mm. Yeah, I would agree with that. That's something we've we've witnessed both in my school and also just speaking to colleagues in Hong Kong. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's almost kind of like uh, when we, when we were first introduced to the course, it was quite a, a freeing feeling, but at the same yeah. time that, that, that kind of scope of freedom was also a little bit intimidating, but I think with good teamwork, with good discussion with, with other schools and within the department, it's, yeah, I, it's, it's, it's been something which I've quite enjoyed actually having finally got my head around it um one big sort of change or one big sort of term that's come to the fore with the new uh, curriculum is the idea of bodies of work with um with with regard to like language texts um the new sort of individual oral and uh, the hlsa if you're doing hl um talks about looking at language texts as a body of work do you think it'd be productive or do you think it's a good idea or is it something in the future we might see to design a prl a prescribed reading list for language texts or language writers for lack of a better word in the same way we have one for literature yeah well bodies of work that was another controversial <laughs> uh, <laughs> idea which uh, generated quite a lot of discussion initially but um um, I, I think that teachers, um, um, and we have all come to terms with the idea now, and, and I think it's working in very productive ways. Um, the, the origin of, of the notion of, of body of work had to do with um, the need to put the study of non-literary texts on a par with the study of literary texts. Um, and, and of course, we also wanted the two courses, and that was a main aim of the review. We wanted the literature course and the language and literature course to be perceived as um, demanding exactly, not exactly, but an equal level of um, critical skills um, in, in students, because there had been a perception that well, when, when, when the language and literature course was launched uh, in 2013, there was this initial perception, and perhaps which carried on, that it was a little bit uh, less demanding than the literature course, and, and it was never meant mm -hmm. to be. So we wanted to make sure that that idea was refuted by the new courses. Um, so we wanted to make the two courses as similar as possible in, term of, in terms of the skills developed, of the competences needed. Um, so it did not make sense to us to, for literary texts to be studied in works and for non-literary texts to be studied in isolation from the rest of the texts the same author had created. Um, so yeah, non-literary texts are different from literary texts, that granted, mm -hmm. but, but if studying authorship is a requirement for literary texts, why shouldn't it be also for non-literary texts? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so the, the parity between both types of texts, I think, can be carried to this point. <laughs> but beyond this point, uh, the differences become very noticeable. Um, literary and non-literary texts create meaning differently. Uh, many times they have different functions and they achieve these functions differently. Um, and as I said before, the, um, sometimes the differences require a different set of skills and a different approach to the selection and study. So taking all this into account, at the very late stage in the, um, in the review, we considered the possibility of having a prescribed reading list for non-literary texts. Um, this was part of the feedback we got from um, some workshop leaders, um, from the upskilling or even the old OCC and the communities. Um, so we considered it, but we decided that it was not feasible and we were not entirely sure it was desirable. Mm. Um, it was not feasible because there is, to start with, a much greater variety of non-literary text types. Um, and, and, and it's difficult to classify them as we do with literary texts into these big four categories, you know, like we do with the forms in literary texts. So that was an initial uh, difficulty. And then the idea of including in a list authors of all these text types 
for each of the 17 languages that um, the language and literature course is offered in seemed, you know, titanic at that moment. Um, uh, and then, you know, the prescribed reading list for literature, what it aims at doing is attaining a balance between canonical and canonical writers and newer voices. How does one define the canon for non-literary texts? What is a classic in terms of non-literary texts? For an ad, for example, for a blog post, for a tweet, you know, what, what is a, a, a canonical tweet? And then the, the other question is, we would be creating this list, say, in 2018. We would have created this list in 2018. And we wouldn't be revisiting it until 2025. How much does a list of non-literary texts, how well does a list of non-literary texts age? Mm -hmm. You know, um, so looking back uh, now, I think it was the right decision not to have one. Um, and it was also very much in keeping with the greater freedom language A courses offer, language A, language and literature in, in this case. Um, and, and actually the evidence that we get from the first session, but also from the uh, discussion in the communities, um, my discussion with workshop leaders is that teachers have been have enjoyed the creativity uh, that not having a prescribed list for non-literary texts um, gave them. You know, yeah, of course, a, a list provides guidance, but it also prescribes and limits choices. So um, in, in the case of non-literary texts, it was I think it was a good thing for teachers to have all the freedom they wanted to have. Yeah, that's really interesting that you said that, that that was kind of a, uh, that there were sort of like proto conversations about a PRL for language. Um, when when you when you we talk about bodies of work, um is it there's obviously like within the the um the syllabus document there's that kind of grid of all the non um literary text types which are uh, suggested to be covered in one way or another over the course of the course um but do you think there are some non literary text types which are more sort of attuned to being bodies of work you you kind of mentioned a few a moment ago but it goes from you know appeals and adverts to travel writing, radio broadcast. Do you think it there are some that stand out more than others with regard to what makes a good body of work? Yeah, well, I, I would say that in principle, um, potentially almost all text types can, can be used to create bodies of work. Um, there are text types in which defining the notion of authorship is a little bit more difficult. Mm. Uh, and, and some of these text types we refer to in the guide, like ads, for instance, who is the author of an ad? Or how, what can provide a sense of authorship for a, for a collection of ads? So we kept that quite flexible in the guide. You know, in the case of ads, you can create a collection of ads um, created by the same advertising agency or a collection of ads advertising the same brand. Mm -hmm. uh, the same thing with music videos. There were many questions about music videos. Who is the author of a music video? And um, so you can go for the director as the unifying element or for the um, singer. Um, so, but I, I don't think, I mean, there are issues of authorship also for literary texts. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I think that that's, that's not an, an, an obstacle. There was a lot of discussion also about TED Talks and mm -hmm. um, how far could tech, TED Talks be used to create bodies of work. And of course, if you think about the specific format of a TED Talk, it's very difficult to find five or 10 TED Talks, five between five to 10 TED Talks by the same speaker. Yeah, impossible. But then if you consider a TED Talk um, a subcategory of the speech text type, yeah. then yeah, you can create um, a body of work around speeches by a same speaker, one or two of which might be a TED Talks, a TED Talk. Um, so, so um, I mean, I think that that, that that would not be a difficulty. The, the, the one text type that keeps coming up is um, uh, tweets, which I've already mentioned. Um, you know, how many tweets do you need to use to put a body of work? Um, and, and, and even if, I mean, so you could, you could study the number of tweets necessary for a um, uh, body of work around tweets to be the equivalent of an extended uh, text literary or non-literary but the difficulty with tweets comes when a student tries to use them for the individual oral 
not for the higher level essay. It wouldn't be a problem with the high, high level essay, but for the individual oral, uh, because you know the extract in an individual oral cannot be more than one text. So that I means say, that the extract yeah. for a collection, for a body of work around tweets, mm. has to be one tweet. And mm. I don't think a tweet can give you enough to talk about for two minutes, which is what you would have to spend talking about the extract. So that that is the difficulty, for instance, with tweets. Mm. But I, uh, I don't think, of course, this would not be a difficulty if a student would use the body of work uh, built around tweets for the higher level essay, because there you don't have an extract and, and they can just refer to as many tweets as they want. So it's, it's not so much a difficulty in the creation of the body of work, but a difficulty in the use of this body of work around tweets for the individual oral. But other than that, I, I think that... Um, the well, the, the 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 grid that you refer to that uh, is part of the language and literature guide is is not exhaustive, and we say that. So there's a, I mean, it's just they're just examples of of non-literary text types that can be um, taught. But the 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 introduction of the notion of bodies of work, as I was saying before, gave gave rise to lots of creativity um, on the part of teachers as regards what text types could be chosen. Mm. And, and so, of course, the first question was photographs, but photographs are included in, the, in that grid that you referred to. But then works of art, paintings, or, mm. and then what about buildings or sculptures? Could, you know, uh, photographs of buildings by the same architect, could that be a body of work? And, and, and we said yes when this came up in IB Answers queries, because why not? I mean, the way that text is defined in the language and literature guide is, is broad enough for you to be able to um, put a body of work around um, buildings or, uh, or sculptures by, mm. by an architect or by a, by a sculptor. So, so it, it has been, I believe, um, in spite of the initial um, opposition to the notion of bodies of work because this this was this was really a big change for language and literature the way that um non-literary texts used to be taught in in the old language a language and literature course was very different from the way that they are taught now um so i, th I think for, i think yeah. for the better though i i do i think it's it got me thinking at the beginning of the course or maybe six months into the course we all talk about the canon and we all talk about new voices and this kind of thing. I'd never thought about that in, in regard to language uh, text before, maybe to a certain extent, but not really. And it, it got me thinking about, well, if I've got to teach a set of speeches, who do I teach? Do, do they need to know uh, who Martin Luther King is? Do they need to know what happened in the Iraq war in 2003 with photography? Where do we go? I think it's a really useful exploration. The only the only problem I've had with it in practicality, I think, is doing service to the the instruction in the guide, which says try and treat a body of work in the same way you would a literary text. So it's it's a bit of a cliche, but on average, you might spend five, six, seven weeks with a literary text. And at the minute, I'm working through a unit of like Nick Oot's photography from the Vietnam War. And I think, you know, we do quite a few photos, but it, I, I don't think I could ever stretch out over six weeks. Have you found in terms of IB answers or whatever the feedback kind of forum is, have you found that maybe that expectation is not as, um, it, it hasn't kind of played out as you thought it would? Yeah, well, the, the balance that the guide asks teachers to strike between uh, literary and non-literary text has texts has to do with the overall time devoted to each, you know. Uh, so it's not like um, you would, because of course, as you were saying, some text types, no matter how many instances of the text type you study, um, require perhaps less time to cover it and to deal with it successfully and in depth than other text types, and that's fine. Um, but what we wanted in the language and literature course was for the overall balance of the time devoted to the study of literature I and the study see. of non-literary texts to be, uh, you know, um, um, kind of uh, the same. I mean, to be yeah. to be leveled. Uh, so it's it's. Uh, let's suppose that well, of course, a uh, um, uh, standard level course, a language and literature course, would be 150 hours. So to put it roughly, so 75 of those hours should be for literature. 75. Uh -huh should be uh, for non-literary texts. And how many, how many bodies of work 
you manage to fit in to those 75, <laughs> you know, that number doesn't need to be the same number as the works into the seven, that, that you studied in the 75 uh, hours devoted to literature. So it's not that number that has to be right or the same. It's the overall balance between the time devoted to literature and to non-literary texts. That, that is we were aim, what we were aiming at. Um, but um, but still, um, in spite of and, and having said that, uh, some text types require might require less time to cover successfully and in sufficient depth than others. I think that we need to make sure that before a teacher and a group of students moves on to another work or body of work or however they do it they might do it in a more integrated and connected way but anyway we need to make sure that every work and body of work has given has been given enough time and depth of analysis for the students to be able to use it um, meaningfully and and in interesting ways for the assessment components mm -hmm. um, so that that's that's what we wanted to make sure um, because even i mean even within literary works um well, I, I, I remember, for instance, that one of the works, and this, this is an old discussion as well, what is the difference between a novel and a nouvelle? Is the <laughs> metamorphosis a short story, a short novel? Mm. What is it? Um, but that question has never come up in relation with plays. And I, and I remember, for instance, teaching Master Harold and the Boys, Fugard's play, which is a very short play, but I, I remember I taught it as a work because of the complexity of, of the play. Um, but even so, in all its complexity and in, in all its richness and in all its appeal to students, teaching Master Harold and the Boys took less time than uh, teaching a novel. Mm. So that even happens within uh, literary works. So yeah. it, it can happen across literary and non-literary texts as well. So it's, it's not something that we were worried about. We, we just wanted to make sure that um, the basic approach was more or less the same, that the, the, the same kind of questions were asked in re as regards. And this has to do with the notion of intertextuality and intratextuality, you know. So mm. it's, it's not only the connection between texts by different authors, but also what brings together a set of texts by the same author and what do they have in common and, and, and mm. what kind of voice um, emerges when you study a number of texts by the same author, be it a literary or a non-literary author. Yeah, in, in practice, it's. I think we were very, very ambitious in the first year of the course in terms of how much non-literature we wanted to do. And I think that's a testament to the excitement or the ambition that we had um, uh, surrounding the, the free choice. But this year, me and the other the teachers who are teaching the DP have definitely scaled down the amount of bodies of work or and, and kind of extended how many... Uh, like iterations of the, the the same author or the same photographer and done it, like you said, in more depth. So that certainly plays out uh, in my experience. The the IO itself is calling for um, students to, to discuss global issues in, in both the language and the literature. Whereas um, in the HL essay, it's focused more on the course's key concepts. Why is this distinction made? Yeah, well, um, that goes back to another big principle behind the review um, and one of the main objectives of the curriculum review, uh, which was to make sure that the teaching of and learning of the new language courses, and hopefully the assessment as well, would reflect um, more clearly the approaches to teaching and learning. Um, so, you know, well, the, the, the six pedagogical principles behind the approaches to teaching uh, and the five big categories of skills in um, approaches to learning. Um, and one of the six pedagogical principles um, in the approaches to teaching is that the teaching of a subject should be developed in local and global contexts. Um, of course, the analysis of context context had, had been important already in the legacy courses. It was a central part of the interactive oral and the reflective statement leading to the written assignment, assignment of the literature course. And it was a key element of paper one, particularly in language and literature. You know, it was one of those steps that the students had to follow when they wrote the commentary in answer to paper one, you know, purpose, context, audience. Um, 
Now, when we started discussing the assessment structure of the new language A courses, we started wondering whether these components, the written assignment or the paper one, were the best ones to assess knowledge and understanding of context. Uh, you know, paper one contains unseen texts. Uh, how much inferencing, I mean, I mean well-founded inferencing mm. uh, of the context of an unseen text can a student come to in an exam situation? And, 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 and you know, examiners of language and literature said this very clearly, you know, um, students are coming to the most outrageous conclusions <laughs> about uh, the context of production of a text going on that little bit of information at the bottom of it. Um, and then as far as the written assignment was concerned, um, the discussion of the contextual elements was only part of the preliminary stages of the written assignment, you know, the, the interactive um, um, oral and the, and the reflective statement. But it didn't always carry through to the final um, mm -hmm. manifestation of the, of the um, written assignment. Um, there, was, there was an academic which was a central part of the review, uh, Suzanne Chu, um, and, and she impressed on us how important it was for students to be able to explore the implications, the local and global implications of texts. So um, we thought that the best instance um, where we could um, assess the student's understanding of local and global contexts would be the internal assessment component, because it would bring in this um, pedagogical principle, but also link it to another pedagogical principle that learning and teaching should be inquiry-based. So they bring both of them into the component and it, it, it invites students to explore the connection between the text and the context in, in, in interesting ways. Um, so that was how we tried to address that pedagogical principle in assessment, you know, so teaching in, in global and uh, local contexts made its way through to the IA, and we thought that was um, more successful a way of channeling that into assessment than paper one or um, the higher level essay. Now, of course, another central element and another central pedagogical principle in the language A courses was conceptual understanding. Um, so there is a, a very clear conceptual framework um, of language A subjects, those seven central concepts, which also interact very nicely with the areas of exploration. But as, as far as assessment is concerned, we had decided that uh, we would be instructing paper authors for paper two to um, use the seven uh, central concepts as an initial inspiration for the questions. So that was covered. Um, there was some assessment of uh, conceptual understanding in um, paper one, in paper two, sorry. Um, now, curriculum managers, when we are, when we consider the distinction between standard level and higher level, we are asked to think of this distinction in terms of two um, ideas, breadth and depth, right? So paper one offers greater depth in uh, breadth, sorry, uh, because it requires um, higher level students to demonstrate knowledge of a broader range of text types. They have no choice. So basically they have to be ready for any text type that might come across, they might come across. So we thought that if breadth was covered with paper one, then the higher level essay should go for depth. And um, we thought that then it would be a good idea for the higher level students to demonstrate a greater depth of understanding of, concept, of concepts, nice. of the central concepts in the higher level essay. So that, that is mainly the way we thought about it. It, it all started with the approaches to teaching, uh, making sure they're all addressed. And, and not all of them ended up being addressed in the assessment, but all of them are addressed in the, you know, there's a lot of differentiation and catering for individual uh, needs. Uh, there's, of course, um, you know, the formative assessment element in the learner portfolio. So each of the six found its way into the teaching and learning. But, but these two, which we considered very, very central um, context and concepts, had to find their way into the assessment. And, and, and that's the way we did it. You know, each one of these two assessment components uh, addressing one uh, different pedagogical principle, principle. And it's interesting that they are both coursework components. Um, so, mm. so, of course, it, as I said before, that brings in the element of inquiry as well.
Mm, that idea of breadth and depth is quite an, quite an easy or like a clear way to understand it. Yeah, it's um, a nice yeah, kind and of, it's very useful uh, for curriculum managers. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it is very useful because yeah, you know when 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 you have you have to make sure that the distinction between higher level and standard level is fair, is manageable, yeah. it's 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 clear enough. So the the IO is definitely something which I guess because the, the HLSA is. Um, there, there are some similarities with like uh, older iterations of the course, and of course, paper one and paper two, slightly different, but not not wholesale changes. With regard to the IO, it, it does seem to be the assessment which um, has been discussed definitely uh, in my school, but it seems online um, uh, the most. With with regard to like the language section, I think it's called Criterion D. It calls for a certain amount of rhetoric to be used um what, what was the reason behind this is this just a byword for or is this just a byway of suggesting that it shouldn't be over rehearsed or was there another kind of um uh, idea behind it there is that there is a question of um of, of not um of, of students not over rehearsing uh, this and this is a point that was, that was something that we were worried about you know being this oral a prepared oral that um, that it should be over rehearsed, and we warn teachers and students uh, against that in the guide. And uh, so, an over rehearsed. Um, but that is funny. I mean, because you can always rehearse things so that they sound natural anyway. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, one of the things I found myself saying in workshops is that, well, if your student learned the IO by heart, then you have to send them back and tell them to learn them to to learn, you know, the IO in a way that sounds natural. You know, yeah. after they learned it by heart, now learned how to make it sound natural, you know, which which is an extra um, uh, requirement and, and it's very demanding. So we, um, we of course, there is, when we were designing the I.O. Um, and we were, when we were wondering what the best internal assessment would be for the um, new language A courses, we thought that perhaps the best way to go more than because we had to move from two components into one because of course in the legacy courses the IA had two components right um, the IOC and the IOP in literature the IOC and the FOA in language and literature so we wanted to keep of those components the best of each um, so um, um, of the IOP and of the FOA, the individual oral incorporated the prepared nature of the component, um, which allowed students to make conscious decisions about not only what to express, but also how to express it. Um, so it, it also incorporated some awareness of the audience, which was very important in the IOP and the, in the FOA. Um, in the case of the individual oral, students have only a one-person audience. So that's why we didn't call it presentation because it would be difficult to um, mm. uh, think of this oral in terms of a presentation when there's only one person listening listening to it face-to-face. -face. Of course, there's the implicit audience of the external moderator, the examiner who will be marking it. Um, but we wanted students to give some thought to how the message might be more effectively conveyed to the audience to demonstrate that some consideration had been given to the words chosen. Um, so criterion A and criterion B are always in all components of our students as readers, you know, active, involved, collaborative, creative readers, but readers uh, after all, at the receiving end of the communication. Criterion C and D, on the other hand, are about the students as communicators, you know, as, as writers or speakers themselves. Yeah, and this is true of all components. And in the IO, which is prepared, um, this becomes even clearer. Um, it's interesting because in the meetings that I, I was referring to a minute ago about the standardization, um, one of the examiners said that one of the, elephant, the elements she found more interesting about the IO is how it targeted um, important skills that the old IOC had not targeted. Mm. Uh, and one of those skills that she mentioned was the, um, the importance of selection skills. Um, you know, selection of works and bodies of works, of extracts of the best global issue, um, careful selection of what to say also, because there's a limited time, which ideas to include and not to include, um, how to organize the ideas. So that's, we're getting into C already, criterion C, the best organizing principle. And when it comes to criterion D, uh, 
of course, the, the selection skills have to do with selection of language, the, the best language I can choose to convey my message, right? So um, the IO, what, what, what it asks the students in relation to uh, criterion D is um, to try to show in the way they express themselves something of what they saw um, the authors they studied do in the works and bodies of work works they analyzed during the course, some of the, of the artistry in the mm -hmm. use of language they saw in those texts. Um, the expect I mean, of course, using the word artistry, uh, you know, it's a little bit daunting. <laughs> uh, but then if you have a careful look at the um, descriptors of Criterion D, um, I think that what comes across is the, the, ex the expectation of the standards we set were not really excessive. Mm. Um, what, what, in the higher band descriptor, for instance, what we say is that we expect elements of style to be appropriate mm. and to enhance the oral. Uh, we expect language to create effects at that level too. So I'm quoting from the descriptor. Um, so thinking about these phrases, I think we were very careful and measured in the way we describe the level of attainment of the higher level of the higher band. Um, we we kept a broad definition of elements of style as well, not limiting not limiting it to um, rhetoric or or figures of speech. So um, the words we went for, the phrases we went for, um, enhance, not greatly enhance. You know, appropriate, not sophisticated mm -hmm. or subtle. You know, mm -hmm. create an effect, not specifying not specifying the intensity of the effect. Uh, so there will be students in, in the higher band of D uh, that will get the, the, the highest mark, that will, of course, impress examiners by how captivating their use of language is or how their enthusiasm and passion is evident and is transmitted to the examiner through the tone. So there will be those uh, students who excel. But within the same band, the highest band, there will be other students who will, you know, have chosen language very carefully uh, just to convey the message clearly with with mm. clarity um you know and, and they will uh, make a positive impact on the examiner because of how clearly their ideas have been expressed mm. uh, so and that's a reasonable expectation and and those candidates might very well get the d the uh, highest level in d as well um, so that the, there will be a range of performances within the higher band of criterion d it's not like we expect um, you know, all students to use figures of speech in, mm. in a way as to create an aesthetic effect. Um, mm. Some students will do that. Um, some students will get the highest mark simply by choosing uh, language with care. Yeah, appropriate tone and, and that kind yeah. of thing. I, I think right. I think it's a testament to the amount of knowledge that the student has or the, the relative confidence that the student has with regard to how they express themselves because I've only got 14, 15 students in the class. And that there was a, probably a representative of every cliche student you might care to remember the, the very measured slow and steady. I don't want to make a mistake. I don't really understand the text, you know, completely, but I've got a good grasp of it. I'm going to go slow and steady. <clears throat> and at the same time, I had students who, wanted to say as much as they possibly could in 10 minutes to the point where it was almost like they were on some sort of artificially altered audio track um, because they were speaking so fast. And there was that last group of students who, knowing the text well, having a good grasp of vocabulary, were able to articulate themselves in a way where, like a teacher might, if they're giving a very sort of didactic explanation of a text, it's it's convincing, it's captivating, it's it's uh, it's it's very reassuring in terms of how well they yeah. understand it. Yeah. And it's funny because um, when we um, not as part of the standardization meeting was the standard setting meeting, the one that we. Um, the, the one that took place last year, uh, but there were some students, and it was it was interesting how sometimes tone and register can um, come into yeah. conflict with one another. Because there were some students who were clearly so carried away by what they were <laughs> saying, um, and they were so enthusiastic um, about the works, right, and the and the presentation of the global issue in the works. Not about because there were also students who were who got carried away 
by the global issue in itself. And that's yeah. a problem because, of course, the oral is not about the global issue, but about the presentation of the global issue in the works of the work or body of work. But there were some students who, I mean, they're, they're, what they were saying was absolutely relevant to the task, but they were so engaged, so involved, and they transmitted that engagement and involvement so clearly that sometimes there were lapses into informality Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a difficult call for the examiners to make. But, you know, when, when you get a student who is so engaged and, and, and the tone is, is so convincing and the engagement and enthusiasm is so contagious, it, it's difficult not to reward that in spite of the fact of that there might have been an occasionally informal phrase, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's, it's um I, I, I think it's difficult for an examiner not to reward that, uh, that mm-hmm. level of commitment um, to the task and, and, and to what's being to discussed. Expression. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, moving away from uh, assessments, the, the, one of the main things which came out of the workshop that I did two, three years ago, whenever it was in Hong Kong, was the idea, this new idea of the learner portfolio. And it was it was lauded by quite a lot of people who attended my workshop and a lot of people came forward and said, oh, I already do this. This is fantastic that it's being enshrined within the, the, the pedagogical approach of the, the IB. Um, why, why was this an initiative originally generated? Like, was it with the possibility of assessments facing change in the future or was it just an opportunity to get kids, students more creative? What, what was the thinking behind that? Yeah, well, I, I I can speak to what we were trying to achieve in Language Day by means of the learner portfolio. Um, mm. I, I cannot speak to uh, more fundamental changes beyond the subjects I manage uh, that the IB may implement in the future. The, the, there is a review um, taking place right now of the diploma program as a whole. Um, assessment is one of the prioritized topics. Uh, it will be interesting to see what conclusions the IB comes to about the direction assessment should take in the future DP. And, and that um, is surely going to address your first question, uh, Chris. Uh, um, but as far as language A is concerned, um, I would say the learner portfolio was conceived as a, min- as a means of um, greater student creativity and reflection, as you as you say. Um, it was also a, a means by which to achieve student agency, um, student ownership of the learning process, uh, and student self-assessment. Uh, it, it, I think it, it is, in this sense, an, an incredibly powerful tool that Language A courses are giving to teachers and students to put the student at the center. Um, but um, going to your uh, going back to your question and 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 that broader um, discussion of assessment, my personal opinion, and I say this as as myself and not as curriculum manager now, um, is um, that I hope that this is the direction that assessment will take. Um, mm. I hope in the future the learner portfolio or components like it will not be an instrument of formative assessment only but that it will be an essential part of the student's summative assessment as well. You know, I hope that that's some of what um, Group 6 does, the arts. Uh, What Group 6 does with assessment right now makes it probably the most innovative and forward-thinking subject group in the diploma Mm -hmm. as far as assessment is concerned. Um, And I hope that what they're doing now uh, becomes to some extent what all other subject groups will do in the future. Adapting, of course, you know, the model that the arts model to the specific characteristics of each group. But what I'm thinking about, and this again is my own personal opinion, is, you know, more coursework, fewer exams, uh, more multimodality in assessment, more collaboration in assessment. You know, film and theater, one of the criteria um, has to do with how much I incorporated feedback from my peers into the final outcome of my work. And I, I find that fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, more, evaluation, more evaluation of the process and not just of the product. But of course, I mean, the reason why I be, we haven't done this yet is because there are issues that need to be addressed. There are manageability issues. There are reliability issues. So it, it's not so straightforward or simple. Um, so it, again, it will be very interesting to see what conclusions the diploma program review comes to as regards assessment in the future. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that. 
Yeah, me too. That's 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 really interesting to hear that the IB are already in conversation um, about that. It it almost seems to me as a teacher who I mean I've only been teaching nine ten years something like that, but it seems to me like it's just a almost like a paradigm shift which I can't even imagine in my in my mind like to to, to move away from this. But I've spoken to maybe fifteen or twenty people on the podcast so far, and a lot of the leaders of schools, uh, international schools, are. I haven't heard a single person who's looking for the 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 current kind of situation to stay the same. I think in recent years, whether it's just because of the pandemic, so it's an administrative kind of push, or whether it's a more kind of um, you know spiritual or, for lack of a better word, you know personal um, preference that they want to see this change. It's definitely it's it's growing in momentum, and you'd like to think that English or language, I should say, has more in common with the arts than, than we give it credit for. I think with, is it, do we still need to write an essay in this day and age? Well, yeah, I suppose so. If you're writing something for the test or you're writing, you know, a, a treatise on something, or if, if you're writing something which requires a certain amount of rhetorical um, discu- discussion. Yeah, fine. But I think we, the, the multimodality thing that you talked about before is, absolutely central like how many things can you see on youtube now or any other kind of platform that is representing shakespeare or chimamanda ngozi adichie or any other writer in in a completely new and and fascinating way so um yeah i think we'll i I certainly will be uh, watching with bated breath to see uh, what kind of innovations um the ib uh come up with um uh, all, all that remains for me to say thank you Emma always thank you very much for um, your time today it was a fascinating um, insight into a lot of um, the new course which is um, it's been a pleasure actually to try and get to grips with and, and, and discuss with people it's bringing out the best of my department and my school lovely kind of conversations happening between the Chinese teachers or the Chinese nice. A teachers I should say and the English A teachers so um yeah fantastic all around thank you very much for your insights more broadly and and the insights you shared with me today thanks you chris for um thanks to you chris for inviting me it was really very interesting to get a chance to talk with you about these these things which are you know i find very interesting i find them fascinating so it's always great to have an opportunity to discuss them sure thanks very much guillermo bye-bye thank you chris bye